Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to try to put the Trump administration's protectionism into historical context. By my reckoning, the Trump administration has now imposed tariffs on about $92 billion worth of American imports, or the equivalent of about 4% of its imports in 2017. That includes tariffs on China, on steel, aluminium, solar panels, and washing machines imports. It does not include the extra tariffs on $16 billion of imports from China coming soon, or the $200 billion that are currently in the works with that product list that was announced on July 10th. It also doesn't include the potential $350 billion worth of imports of cars and car parts that the Trump administration is considering in an investigation into whether they're a threat to national security. It also doesn't include $73 billion worth of American exports that trading partners are currently hitting with their own tariffs. And those seem to be going up by the day. So these sound like really big numbers. And one obvious question that I've been asked a few times is how big are they really? Is this the biggest bout of protectionism ever? Unfortunately, comparing protectionism over time is really difficult. So, of course, we have enlisted the help of Doug Irwin, Chad's colleague here at the Peterson Institute and a professor of economics at Dartmouth College. Before we get to Doug, the first thing you need to think about is the measure of protectionism you're actually using. $100 billion worth of imports might be affected by a tariff, but there's a big difference between a 1% tariff and a 1,000% tariff. So you obviously need to think about the amount of trade affected and then how high the tariff is. And really, you should put the numbers in context to get a sense of how big they are. Dollar numbers are not so great for comparing over time. It's better to compare them with total trade or GDP. And as an economist, we should also be thinking about the economic cost of protectionism. The economic costs matter when you start to think about the impact of these tariffs. Because you can impose a really high tariff on, say, t-shirts from China and affect a lot of trade. But if people just start importing t-shirts from Bangladesh instead, then total imports might not fall all that much. Prices might not rise all that much. And American consumers might not mind. So you might have a lot of trade affected, but the economic harm might not be all that high. It's also really important to think about the economic harm of trade restrictions when you're comparing between different types of trade restriction. Because, of course, there are lots of different ways of restricting trade. Trump likes tariffs, but the alternatives include quotas or voluntary export restraints. And and those are where, where trading partners manage the amount of trade flowing between them. So these other kinds of trade protection might look like they're better than tariffs. There isn't any tax revenue being collected. But when you consider the economic harm, they can be just as bad. So with with a quota, for example, the economic cost comes as exporters send less than they would have done otherwise, and prices rise as a result. So the exporters sell less stuff and consumers cut back too. Unfortunately, it's really hard to pin down this loss of economic well-being that comes with different types of trade restrictions, or as economists call it, the deadweight loss. And you definitely can't calculate this thing in real time. So we asked Doug how he would compare different instances of protectionism over time. Yes, comparing uh, different instances of protectionism over time is difficult to do, and so I've always been somewhat reluctant to compare which is bigger or which is smaller. And I'm sort of reminded of uh, Tolstoy and Anna Karenina, who said that happy families are all alike, and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. 
And just in that same way, uh, every protectionist measure is different in its own special way. Yeah, we have a podcast to produce, so we went ahead anyway. When people think about Trump, they always begin by thinking about parallels with the early 1980s. So the economic context in the early 1980s was much different than it is today. Um, Back then, we had a major recession as the Fed was trying to tighten monetary policy to reduce the inflation rate. The unemployment rate hit over 10% towards the end of 1982. We had a large and growing trade deficit, so a lot of domestic producers were facing foreign competition. And in general, the, the economy just wasn't doing well. So in the early 1980s, the Reagan administration wanted to help out domestic producers of cars and steel and textiles and apparel because the unemployment rate was very high, the economy was in this deep recession, and by limiting import competition, we might be able to help them out of their uh, difficult position. So the Reagan administration went to Japan as an auto exporter and Europe as a major steel exporter and many developing countries as textile and apparel exporters and got them to agree to voluntary export restraints in which they limited their exports to the United States. Then later in the 1980s, when the economy was doing better, uh, the focus of the administration was not so much on protectionism for domestic industries. They were using tariff threats to get other countries to change their behavior and open up their markets. This is particularly uh, true in the case of Japan, where the U.S. thought that the Japanese market was closed. There's a lot of allegations of unfair trade. And so the U.S. retaliated and imposed tariffs on Japan to get them to open up their market. As Doug said before, it's very hard to compare a quota with a tariff. So these trade restrictions were pretty widespread in the early 1980s. About 8% of U.S. imports in 1975 were covered by some sort of import restriction. And by 1984, about 21% of U.S. imports were covered by some of these export restraints and other measures. And when you total up the total uh, quota rents, um, which count as part of the deadweight losses for all the, from all these uh, voluntary export restraints in the early 1980s, in terms of autos, steel, and textiles and apparel, they amount to about $26 billion, or about 0.7% of GDP, which is quite large um, and actually equivalent uh, to about a 49% tariff on all imports, according to some calculations done by um, DeMello and Tarr, Jaime DeMello and uh, David Tarr at the time, both World Bank economists. That all sounds like a much more extreme version of what we're seeing now with Trump's tariffs. Yes, and the reason is that the quotas involved exporters getting what's called a quota rent. Under a tariff, the American government is imposing a tax, and so they collect revenue. But under a quota, foreign exporters simply get to charge higher prices and keep that money for themselves when they're selling less in the U.S. market. And then there's another difference, which is the economic context. Both Reagan and Trump are trying, in part, to protect domestic producers. For Reagan, it was cars and steel. Um, For Trump, it's also steel and aluminum. But the context is a little bit different for the U.S. economy now because it's doing well. The unemployment rate is low. The trade deficit's not really growing as a share of GDP. And yet we see these protectionist measures coming on board. The economic cost is also going to be different uh, in comparing the 80s with the current day or the Trump administration tariffs. Because once again, back then, we were imposing voluntary export restraints and giving up quota rents, which were enormous. And today we're imposing tariffs, which may distort trade just as much, but at least the government's collecting some tariff revenue and not giving up those quota rents. So the deadweight losses, you might think, for comparable measures would be less. Let's go further back in time to 1971, when America experienced the Nixon shock. The Nixon shock, in retrospect, is quite amazing. 
It also happened against some tricky economic times. So the background was the economy in the late 1960s, early 1970s wasn't doing so well. We had some inflation, a higher unemployment. There was a growing trade deficit. Actually, all these indicators were relatively mild uh, compared to what we saw later in the 70s and 1980s, but it was considered a big problem at that point in time. And it, we were in sort of an end game in terms of the Bretton Woods system. The Bretton Woods system was a system of fixed exchange rates established after World War II. And the main problem with those fixed exchange rates is that by the late 1960s and early 1970s, is they were misaligned from their equilibrium level. And this was thought to be responsible for the growing U.S. trade deficit at the time. And the Nixon administration wanted other countries to revalue their currencies, or in other words, to allow the U.S. dollar to depreciate against those currencies to help reduce the U.S. trade deficit. The president, unilaterally, overnight, very little warning, imposed a 10% import tariff on around half of American imports. Here's President Richard Nixon in 1971. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. In full cooperation with the International Monetary Fund and those who trade with us, we will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Stability and equal treatment is in everybody's best interest. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. I'm taking one further step to protect the dollar, to improve our balance of payments, and to increase jobs for Americans. As a temporary measure, I am today imposing an additional tax of 10% on goods imported into the United States. This is a better solution for international trade than direct controls on the amount of imports. This import tax is a temporary action. It isn't directed against any other country. It's an action to make certain that American products will not be at a disadvantage because of unfair exchange rates. When the unfair treatment is ended, the import tax will end as well. A 10% import tariff on half of America's imports seems like a much more extreme action than what we're seeing right now. And so that uh, 10% import tariff, uh, which was imposed with the Nixon shock, was designed to force other countries to revalue their currencies. It was really aimed at Japan, but it applied to all of our other trading partners as well, and therefore led to a lot of opposition. So for example, Canada didn't really think they were part of the problem. Germany didn't think they were part of the problem either because they had a floating exchange rate, and yet they were hit with these tariffs for exchange rate purposes anyway. And the, uh, there was a lot of interesting politics within the Nixon administration. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger was pressuring the president to get rid of them because it was causing all of these foreign policy problems, alienating America's allies in the middle of the Cold War. But the Treasury Department and Nixon himself wanted to keep these tariffs on to pressure foreign countries as much as they could to change their exchange rates. And eventually, the foreign policy team sort of won, and Nixon ordered a quick resolution of this dispute, which came with the Smithsonian Agreement on Exchange Rates in December of 1971, which President Nixon uh, called the most significant monetary agreement in the history of the world. So eventually, after four months uh, that the tariffs were in effect, Japan did agree to revalue its currency, and the import tariff of 10% went away. In that sense, the Nixon shock can be considered a success. 
It was imposed for a very specific purpose, was imposed just for a limited time, and it uh, achieved its objective of getting other countries to change the value of their currency. Here's where the comparison is very interesting in terms of how difficult it is to compare across time, because the tariffs that the Trump administration is imposing are much higher in the range of 25% or so, but they're affecting a much smaller part of trade. So when Nixon imposed his 10% tariff, economists suspect that it reduced imports by about 6 to 8%, which is a fairly significant amount. But once again, it was only in place for four months. And that's another dimension we have to keep in mind as well, how long the restrictions are in place. So for the Trump administration, so far the tariffs have been only in effect for a few days. They could last for much longer than four months, however, and that would, of course, affect the calculation of how costly they've been. So Trump has a little while to go before he gets to exceed the Nixon shock. Let's go back even further. And just because it's fun, we thought we'd ask Doug about the chicken war between the United States and the European economic community, the precursor to the European Union that took place in the 1960s. The context for the chicken war is that uh, when the European economic community was formed in 1958, they quickly formed what was known as the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP, to limit imports of agricultural produce and provide subsidies for domestic farmers. And one of the things they did in forming the uh, Common Agricultural Policy is that they doubled the import duty on chicken in July of 1962 as a part of the CAP. And this uh, had a big impact on the U.S. The U.S. Uh, had been a major chicken exporter, and U.S. exports of poultry fell by two-thirds within a few weeks of this extra chicken tax being imposed by the Europeans. So needless to say, the U.S. was upset about this and tried to negotiate with them to get rid of the chicken tax, but they didn't manage to get anywhere. So the U.S. responded by retaliating against Europe and imposing higher tariffs itself. And it imposed them on several goods, but the most famous one was a 25% tariff on imported trucks. Now, this was aimed uh, at the time mainly at Volkswagen in Germany, which was exporting sort of uh, smallish, boxy trucks to the U.S., But this 25% tariff stuck, and we still have it today, and that's because the Europeans never agreed to change their chicken policy. So this is just an episode where you get this retaliation, but it doesn't really lead to a resolution of the dispute, and these uh, tariffs remain in place for many, many decades. So that chicken tax and that truck tariff, they've been on since the 1960s, affecting narrow bits of trade, but for a very, very long time. Now, to finish things off, let's go back even further to the 1930s. If you're interested, you should definitely listen to episode 31 to hear even more from Doug about what happened. Well, the 1930s was probably the mother of all trade wars, if you want to use that term, uh, trade wars, which I generally try to avoid. But when we look back at the Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, the increase actually wasn't as enormous as we sometimes uh, think it is. It increased tariffs by about six percentage points from roughly 41% to maybe 47% on dutiable imports. And dutiable imports were about a third of total U.S. imports at that time. But of course, what happened is is that we had deflation, which uh, because we were entering the Great Depression, um, prices were falling, and this exacerbated the impact of the tariff because a lot of the import tariffs at that time weren't a tax in the form of a percent of the import value. They were a tax of a specific dollar amount per imported item. And so when prices fell, the impact of these uh, specific dollar amount tariffs had a much bigger impact on trade than the actual legislation itself. And then, of course, there was retaliation against the United States. And um, the the big impact in terms of the 1930s being a a big uh, trade war, if you want to use that term, is that there's many countries raised their tariffs uh, 
unilaterally. Uh, there's a lot of retaliation. It didn't just involve one country. Uh, really, the whole world trading system sort of imploded during that period. Trump isn't quite at the point where he's implemented Smoot-Hawley-style tariffs, though he has threatened to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. And it turns out being outside of the WTO could mean the United States reverted to those old Smoot-Hawley tariffs or what are currently the column two tariffs in the American tariff schedule. So for fun, Doug and I decided to calculate just what those old Smoot-Hawley tariffs would imply for the American tariff levels today. Now, as listeners will remember from a couple of episodes ago, there's a couple of different ways that you can actually calculate those average tariffs. So here are two. First, on a simple average basis, or just weighting each product the same, the current American tariffs average to about 3.4%. If President Trump were to increase those to this Smoot-Hawley column two tariff rate, they would go up to 36%. Second, on a trade-weighted basis, the U.S. tariffs today are about 1.4%. If the president moves those to those Smoot-Hawley column two tariff rates, that would increase the average to about 28%. So these are big increases. I think the main message there is just to remind listeners that we are still very far away from where we were in the 1930s, and hopefully President Trump doesn't listen to this episode and take it as some kind of challenge. Though to be clear, we do still have a lot more tariffs that President Trump has announced and that aren't yet implemented. So far, as of July 13th, when we're recording this episode, Trump's newly imposed tariffs cover only about 4% of U.S. imports. But those don't include another $16 billion on China that could be imposed in a matter of days, another $200 billion on China that could come on around September, and then that $350 billion of imports of cars and car parts that are part of this ongoing national security investigation. If President Trump slaps tariffs on all those, which could happen by sometime this fall, suddenly he would have imposed new import restrictions on about 25% of U.S. imports. All of that only since the beginning of 2018. That is a lot of tariffs, and a lot more than what the Smoot-Hawley legislation achieved on its own. And on that ominous note, that is all from Trade Talks. A big thanks to Doug Irwin at the Peterson Institute and Dartmouth College. And if you don't already have one, go out and buy a copy of Doug's new book, Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. It tells in more detail the incredible stories of each of these historical episodes of the 20th century protectionism that we talked about today. I would also like to thank in advance Colin Warren. He is going to be joining the Trade Talks team to help us improve our audio quality. Listeners may be stunned to note that, in fact, Chad and I have been editing all the episodes ourselves so far. So from now on, don't worry, we're less likely to sound that we're underwater. He's going to help us fix that. Okay, so tell everyone, don't keep your secret stash of trade knowledge to yourself, share the podcast, tell everyone you know. And if you haven't yet, please take two minutes to go leave us a review on iTunes, which apparently helps other people find the podcast. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to estimating protectionism today, having two points of comparison is better than one. Do you think we should get a new Twitter handle to give us the opportunity to make better jokes at the end? I feel like we're maybe constrained by the double underscore thing. But we would lose all five of our followers if we got a new Twitter handle. Yeah, that is a problem.